This episode of Campwire is brought to you by RegPack, an online camp management software. Are you looking for a better solution to manage registration and payments this year? RegPack is not your average camp software. They work with after-school, enrichment, and day school professionals too. Create a customized registration flow with built-in payments, donations, and reporting. Learn more and get a free shirt with a product demo. Head to www.regpacks.com forward slash ACA or email sales at regpacks.com to schedule a call. And welcome to the Campwire podcast. My name is Lauren McMillan, and I am the PR and communications manager here at ACA. And today I am so excited. We get to talk to Eric Hancock of the Kabbalah Washako Architects. TKWA is a collaborative team of creative thinkers, craftspeople, and advocates who are passionate about designing regenerative places that strengthen communities. Eric believes in the power of collaboration to make buildings that are beautiful, humane, and interconnected with the living world. As a TKWA partner, he seeks to more fully integrate the firm's wholeness-based philosophy, both in design outcomes and studio culture. Eric is an experienced designer, architect, and project manager, as well as a nationally recognized leader in planning and design for outdoor camps and nature-based educational facilities. Eric's diverse background in architecture, music, and software development helps him create empathetic and responsive designs for varied and complex client design challenges. On a typical workday, Eric can be found accompanied by his miniature schnauzer mojo, the studio's unofficial emotional support animal. Eric, welcome to the Campwire podcast. Hi, Lauren. Thanks so much for having me. Yes. Good yeah. to be here. So tell us first, a lot of big words there. The Kabbalah Washako <laughs> Architects. Tell us a bit more about TWKA and your role within the firm. Sure. Uh, well, as you said up at the top, I'm a, a partner with TKWA. I've um, <clears throat> been at the firm for 10 years now and uh, a partner for, I believe, four, three going on four. And, um, you know, as far as the camp focus goes, when Tom and Alan, uh, who are the, the founders of the firm, when they ask me, uh, if you're going to be a partner, what do you want to be doing? I, uh, I looked at projects that I had worked on and uh, the things that really gave me the most joy in my time with uh, you know various projects. And I realized that there was almost no better client and no better project than a, a camp. The love for the natural environment and the value of giving young people, you know, really wonderful formative outdoor experiences is something that I just love being a part of every time. Every camp is different. And so I thought, you know, we've done a few of these camp planning exercises but when I looked into it, there really aren't very many firms nationwide that have really made it part of their mission uh, to specialize in the, the design of facilities and, and sites for camps. So very often you have a local firm that maybe hasn't ever done it before or uh, a firm 
that kind of flies in from far away, spends a couple of days, uh, maybe gets to know the camp a little bit, um, and then goes away. So I wanted us to become a national leader in doing camp design and planning, because I think they're just such important places. Yeah. Oh, I think that's so incredible. I mean, even just looking at your all's website, um, you're right. I don't, I don't know of any other architectural firm that has such a strong focus and truly love for summer camps and the summer camp experience. And I'm just going to read this quote that is on the website that I think really resonated with me. And I think our listeners will really resonate with as well. And it says the reasons for going to camp and the types of camp experiences are as numerous and varied as campers themselves. Camps are in a constant state of change. The experience of today's campers are different in countless ways from those of their parents. Nevertheless, an essential quality connects these places. We help the people who care more about camps to create places that preserve and enhance that quality. I mean, A, that is such a beautiful sentiment and so true. Have you been able to see that kind of come to life with the camps that you've worked with? Absolutely. Um, you know, as, as I've said, um, you know, it, it bears repeating that camp directors and camp staff and people who send their kids to camp summer after summer um, are just uh, the best. And um, to make a plan to design a building that helps enhance that experience in some way is really one of the most rewarding things that I do. And, and it never gets old because as that quote says, you know, camps are constantly changing. You know, there are, there are camps that are really high tech these days. There are camps that focus on things like cosplay. Uh, and then there are very traditional camps as well. And we really love just meeting all the people who care about those places. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think camp people are the best, so <laughs> I'm glad that you agree. And there are several, there are several key points in this quote that I want to talk about a bit later on. But first, I would love to learn more about your journey to becoming an architect and to joining TKWA. Uh, looking at your background a little bit, and we didn't mention this earlier on, but you studied music in college and in grad school. Yeah. Let's hear yeah, more about that. <laughs> How much time do you have? Oh, we've got all day. <laughs> yeah, it, I, I took a very long and kind of winding path to becoming an architect. Um, but in a lot of ways, I, I feel like it was almost necessary. There's so many skills that I picked up along the way. So mm -hmm. as you said, yeah, I, I did both an undergraduate degree and a master's degree in, in music. And uh, I was like a classically trained trombonist. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, I got to the kind of the end of my college experience and, uh, realized that performing was not something that I, I wanted to do for my whole life, you know, kind of being committed to being in the practice room all the time was just not, it, it was, it, it took years for that to dawn on me, <clears throat> but I'm glad that it did. And I, I'm glad I had the experience. And then at that time I was, you know, I was looking for work and that was in the uh, kind of the mid to late 1990s when all you had to do to become uh, kind of an IT expert was to be in your 20s uh, and people would sort of believe that you you had those skills and so I kind of talked my way into a, a web design 
job. And that actually became a second career. And I spent about five or six years doing that and eventually got into database development. And um, I worked as a consultant for a, a few years. And that was that was like a whole career, Lauren. And uh, then I realized that there was some there were some aspects of both things that I had done that that really were a part of me almost like two halves of a person there was a a problem solving aspect to database design and computer programming and there was a, a creativity that i think i was really missing from my my career in music and i was i was looking for something that combined the two and i mean it sounds a little melodramatic but i on a trip, on a vacation, uh, my wife and I stumbled across um, Frank Lloyd Wright's Taliesin in Spring Green, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And it was that visit. I had no idea what I was looking at or what was, uh, you know, what an architect really did, but I knew that whatever it was, whatever that feeling was, I wanted to be a part of it somehow. So I went back for yet more expensive education and um and then became an architect and that yeah that eventually led to tkwa through a, a couple of other jobs but one of the things that really was inspiring and i was kind of watching the firm for many years realizing that a lot of my favorite places in and around the city of milwaukee and wisconsin were places that were designed by this firm and it's almost I feel almost sheepish sometimes because whenever we have family or friends that come into town, a lot of the places that we'll think of to take them are places that the firm has designed mm -hmm. and places that I wasn't necessarily involved in because they were before, you know, the, the firm has been around for 41 years mm -hmm. now. So there's there's a huge canon of completed buildings. And so I, I very often have to say this, yeah, yes, this building was designed by my firm. No, I wasn't involved, but yes, I'm very proud of it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, you, you, you certainly still have some, some involvement with it. I think that's incredible. Yeah. It, I, I think it's so interesting that you took this kind of winding path to get to where you are today. But I think for many people, I think that, I think that's true. And I think young people, especially are led to believe that like once they graduate from high school, they have to know immediately what field they want to go into. And I think that can be very daunting and can cause a lot of anxiety because I mean, when I went into college, I certainly didn't know what I wanted to do. And even getting to where I am with ACA, I did not take the direct path to go straight into working with camps. It, it took more of a winding route, but, but I don't think it would have worked out any other way. And I think uh, the camp experience lends itself beautifully to allowing kids to, to try new things and to, to have a similar experience to what you did and, and having these realizations of what interests them and what skills to develop and, and how it can mold together in, in kind of a, a really beautiful story. So with that in mind, did you grow up going to summer camps or anything similar to that? I did. I had I had any number of different experiences, some of them better than others, some of them really life-changing. So I met my wife at camp. I met my wife at a music camp. We were both 17 years old. <clears throat> that camp has a pretty special place in my heart, for sure. I've worked at camps. Um, so I, I was um, I worked in the kitchen 
at a camp. Mm-hmm, so I, I know how a camp dining hall works. And I have so much respect for people who serve food to children. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, and, uh, and now, you know, I, I send my own kids to camp. Uh, so it's, you know, it's something that's been a part of my life. I've even gone to camp as an adult. A, a couple of years ago, I went to a camp. And then every time we take a trip to visit a camp and meet people, and we always like to go, if at all possible, when camp is in session, mm-hmm. uh, because we really want to see how it's working. I mean, in some ways, there's there's something a little sad about a camp, you know, a, a summer camp during the winter when everything's mm-hmm. all shuttered. Sometimes it's easier to get in and see things. But, you know, every time we go and we visit a camp, uh, I think to myself, I want to be a kid again. Yes. And I want to be back at camp because these these places are so cool. Right. Oh, that's so fun. And I love that you got to go to camp as an adult. It's, it just, I think it reignites this, this spark for, for play and, and for just, I don't know, just having a much more, uh, I don't want to say like magical view of the world, but more or less it is camp camp is magical and it's the best. Wow. Honest, okay. I love that. Honestly, I, I love the new trend that's uh, been happening the last few years of, um, summer camps that are, are typically associated obviously with, with youth activities starting or restarting these kind of family camp mm-hmm. programs <clears throat> that can really make it part of a family vacation. Yes. Um, you know, where everyone can participate in that right. experience. Oh, that's so much fun. All right. So speaking of camp and the countless benefits that can come with the summer camp experience, I would love to talk about each of the guiding principles that TKWA follows. And I would love for you to speak about each of them. And I just think looking at them myself and kind of reading through them, it's like, well, this is exactly why camps exist and why we love camps so much. So let's go through each one. And I would love for you to explain kind of the, the meaning behind each of these principles and why they are so important, especially when it comes to the work that you all do, um, whether it's designing and building camps or any of the any of the other projects that you're working on. So the first one is wholeness in practice. What does that mean for you all? And how does that apply to your work? Sure. And there's a very good reason why that one's at the top. Very simply put, it's the belief that everything is interconnected. Mm -hmm. And that sounds like it would be so simple. And that question of what does it mean in practice, it, it means that we're trying at all times not to set artificial boundaries on where we look for answers and the kinds of questions that we ask. So what does that really mean? Mistakes, I think, that a lot of architects make when they're looking at a building is to kind of stop at the boundaries of the site. So that's one of the first boundaries is to say that the only thing that matters is what's in within that kind of dotted property line. And to understand that, you know, if you have a waterway on a property, that water comes from somewhere and it goes from somewhere. And so you have to, in a very basic way, you know, you have to treat that water with respect and, you know, make sure that it leaves as clean or cleaner than when it came into the site. Mm -hmm. It also means that uh, on a human level, the campers and 
the parents, they are all coming from somewhere. They don't magically materialize at camp uh, and their experience is completely bounded by the week that they might stay there. So it ties back to thinking about the larger community, thinking about the demographics of the families that come in and how that affects how you design things, thinking about what is, what does inclusion mean for that camp? You know, all of those things relate back to this concept of wholeness. And it means that, you know, it's, you can't ever design a camp by numbers. You can't just simply look at, you know, how many beds do you need? Uh, how many mouths do you have to feed? How many sittings in the dining hall do you have? Uh, all of those things relate back to real questions about what the values of the camp are and what the values of the people who come to that camp are. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, I love that. And it's so true because I think the camp experience itself, it's its more than just what happens within the boundaries of, of the physical campus. Everything that you said, like these people are coming from so many different backgrounds and, and in many cases, you know, people, I remember the camp that I grew up going to girls would fly in from across the country and sometimes from around the world to attend camp. And I think it's so interesting to, to remember that and to keep in mind that it's the camp, the physical spaces of camp are just kind of one ingredient of the greater recipe that makes this beautiful and delicious summer camp experience. And the idea that camp has such a strong impact beyond the session itself and thinking about like the impact that it has when campers go back out into the world and return to their families or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. I think it gives, it, it makes me think again, back to that, the image of the summer camp locked up and empty during the winter time is, well, this physical space might not be active in that moment, but the benefits of camp and the lessons learned and the friendships mm -hmm. made and the, and the wholeness in practice. I mean, that is still carrying on throughout the year. So yeah, I think that's, well, that's a, a yeah, that's a really good point because it does relate to time mm -hmm. as well because every camp, you know, unless it's being created new, um, you know, every camp has a past. Mm -hmm. uh, and they, you know, they may have traditions and to understand those and not just simply discard them. Uh, I you know, I went to a great talk at a prior ACA conference uh, where the presenter was talking about how you engage with tradition, you know, what traditions are helping your camp and what traditions might be better put away or mm -hmm. adapted. And that, that really is how we approach it as well. We want the camp to be something that looks familiar to someone who is a parent, who's also an alumni. Mm -hmm. Yeah, recognizing that it is kind of a living, breathing thing in many ways and that it's not static, it's dynamic and and being able to be comfortable with change and embracing change, whatever that may look like. Yeah, so with that, that kind of goes beautifully into the next principle, which is mutual understanding. Yeah, so that really means mutual understanding is, is that everyone should be able to speak the same language when it comes to the design and planning, you know, that knowing what the mission and values are and knowing that they're, those are shared in some way. Mm -hmm. And what very often happens, you know, architecture is a profession that requires a lot of study 
and you take a lot of exams to become licensed as an architect. And along the way, you pick up a lot of jargon and that can be very uh, kind of polarizing where the architect is this skilled professional and we believe that we have this expertise to bring to the table and there can often be a kind of arrogance that comes along with that and at the very least this language that can keep people from being able to really share the same space to be able to share the same ideas and so we have a, a process which I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about but we have a process that really tries to break down those barriers and and honestly you know a lot of people a lot of people like to say it's a common phrase to say that they're visual learners but in many ways the skills that architects have to create compelling imagery can almost shortcut the discussion about the the issues and the the values in the design process. Mm -hmm. So if you produce a really pretty looking image, you can kind of convince someone that what they're seeing is what they want. And to bring out those images too early in the process can actually hamper that mutual understanding. Mm -hmm. And so to create a kind of shared language that is plain English, is not infused with all that architect speak, can really help people become informed critics of the design. Mm -hmm. And that's something that can be actually pretty threatening to architects because it means that, that a client or you know, other kinds of stakeholders can call you out when what you're showing, what you're presenting doesn't really live up to the, the vision that was agreed upon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, it's like being okay from your all's perspective with taking that risk, but also knowing and believing in everything that went into it. I think, I think that can be scary, but I think at the end of the day, and maybe you can add on to this, I think in many regards, it's worth it. Oh, it's so worth it. It is incredibly rewarding. I've always said that the compliment that I enjoy the most and the one that I'm always aiming for is, uh, you know, to be perfectly, I'll be perfectly honest with you. The one I'm always aiming for is that, you know, you listen to us and you got it. And this, you know, this plan or this building, it really looks like, it looks like us. It looks like it belongs. Mm -hmm. And that is always my goal. Yeah. I love that. But I mean, that only comes if you can kind of shed the, uh, that kind of myth of authorship that I'm going to be as the architect, I'm the artist, and I'm going to be mm -hmm. the author of this thing. And then you will just kind of receive it as the client. And uh, that really puts up a barrier between us. Mm -hmm. Right. It, it makes it, it sounds like it makes it a much more collaborative experience in many ways. And this idea of mutual understanding just makes me think, and I think you can probably relate to this as well, having grown up in camps and even worked at camps and now being a camp parent and then experiencing adult camp. I think that there is such tremendous value to the shared experience, not only of living in essence in the community of camp, especially with overnight camps, when people have these shared living spaces and, but also with day camps and really any kind of camp, you learn how to, to live in 
in a community and to collaborate and to develop respect and an appreciation for each other's points of views and perspectives and backgrounds. And I think, I mean, that's really the only way that it can work well is if there is kind of this mutual respect and understanding. And I think that that's something that's not just limited to like camper to camper experiences, but also between staff and campers and with camp directors and staff and camp directors and campers and parents. I think it's, there's so many different little pieces that make up the whole, but having that mutual understanding and that willingness to work and to learn from one another. I mean, it's, it, it just benefits everybody. Well, and that's really why I felt like we were also such a great fit as a firm Mm -hmm. for, for the camp community, because yeah, when we would work with these groups, it would be, there would be a light bulb that goes on that says, oh yeah, well, we're talking about the same thing really. Mm -hmm. When when you're you're talking about the trying to create that community within camp and that sense of mutual respect and, you know, all of those, all of those skills that, you know, trying to teach about conflict resolution and about effective communication Mm -hmm. and those interpersonal relationships you know, it just, it's, it is speaking the same language. And so it seemed like, you know, we should be doing as much as we can to partner with organizations that share these same values. Mm -hmm. And one of those values, I think, comes from the next principle, which is being undivided from nature. Yeah. So that is really related to not just sustainability, because that, that's a term that gets thrown around a lot. And I think it, I think the climate around that is around that word is changing a little bit where we're talking less about sustainability and more about being regenerative. And so I think at a camp, almost as much as any other place where you can go, there is a sense of of being at one with nature. And this idea, what I what I've said sometimes is uh, the question that I ask as almost as a joke is when did we become an invasive species? Yes. <laughs> you know, when, why is it that we think of humanity as either being, you know, always non-native, mm-hmm. uh, always somehow separate from the natural environment, even when we talk about sort of quote unquote sustainable or green design we think of our influence as being uh, e- either to try to do less harm or to not leave a trace. And what you find is throughout history, you look at indigenous civilizations that were really highly integrated into nature. It was very clear that they were there and that you know that they were managing the landscape, but they were doing it in a way that actually improved the health of the land, mm-hmm. uh, instead of just trying to either you know dominate it and treat it only as a resource, or to sort of put it under glass and preserve it. Mm-hmm. And I think you know one of the things that is really clear about how camps operate is that you're not going to develop a love and a care for something that's always at arm's length. Mm-hmm. And so to understand how a building or you know whether it's a program area or just 
a, a part of a, of a camp property, how is it that what you build or what you don't build uh, or how you use it actually enhances the value of that land? Mm-hmm. And I mean, that goes all the way back to the principle of wholeness that, um, you know, there's a community of human beings, but there's also a community of other kinds of beings. Right. Yeah. I love that. And I think that's such a good point about keeping, especially for camps, the difference between keeping nature at arm's length versus being brave enough to take the risk of stepping into it and not being afraid of it, but learning how to work with it and to be good stewards of nature and good stewards of the planet. And I think, I think that's something that camps do really well, but I love that reminder of, of not, not shying away from it, but kind of learning and working and, and often through trial and error, but how to support it and in many ways to make it better. Okay. For these next two points, I feel like kind of like you said, undivided from nature, they all, they all really go together so beautifully. Um, so we've touched on some of these points already, but the next one is collaboration without ego. And I think that kind of goes back to, um, the concept of mutual understanding and, but yeah, let's, let's talk about that one for a second. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it is a, it's a very hard thing (laughs) for an architect to do is to set that ego aside. Um, but it, it means looking at your, uh, clients and really anyone who's a part of the process as an equal contributor. Mm -hmm. And in the practical sense, it's being ready to hear that you've missed something, Mm -hmm. being always ready to reconsider what your, what your first instinct was when you see a place to not judge things too quickly. In practice, I'll say that it means we, more so than anywhere else I've worked, we probably wait longer to start drawing Mm -hmm. than anyone else. And the reason for that is as soon as you start drawing, you go into the problem solving mode. Mm -hmm. And the longer you can stay in that problem identifying or issue identifying mode, the more you can settle that, settle the ego away, settle the sort of thinking mind and really just listen to what others are saying and listen to their perspectives and maybe make some observations. I mean, the, the, the best observations are things that are self-evident, but no one is saying, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, sometimes it's just putting words to something that everyone else has, has already been feeling. Uh, but once you say it out loud, it becomes a guiding principle right. and you have you have to wait and you have to not always be the first to jump in and start offering as a solution or your perspective on something mm-hmm. yeah oh there are so many little gems within that i think first of all just purely the idea of slowing down and waiting and not jumping immediately into problem solving mode i think that is an incredibly valuable reminder and a lesson not just for camps, but for anybody listening to this and anybody who lives in this world today, because we're so used to just moving at the fastest pace possible and having that instant gratification and wanting the solution now and the answer now and, and not being willing to, to pause and step back and, and listen. And I think too, it's, it's important for 
our camps to be hearing this information because yes, it's valuable for our campers to learn the importance of listening to others and being open-minded and open-hearted to different voices and diverse backgrounds and different ideas and opinions. Um, but I think it's also critical for camps, camp staff and camp directors and owners to remember that as well, when they're thinking about their staff training coming up later in the spring over the summer, how their staff approach different problems or identifying problems or, or how they operate as leaders in their respective camps and their camp communities. I think, yeah, that's huge. And that's, that's a lesson that we all need to learn and be reminded of. Yeah. I, we know within our team, uh, when we're preparing to go to a meeting and, you know, maybe have one of these listening sessions, one of the things that we talk about amongst ourselves often is, you know, how, long are we willing to let what feels like an uncomfortable silence linger? Mm -hmm. Because there are very often there are people in the room who are trying to, and we're talking about adults here, you know, I, I would go doubly so for young people, but, you know, there will be someone in the room who is trying to work up the gumption to offer their thoughts. And it could be the most important observation of the day. Mm -hmm. And they are just waiting for enough space to feel like they're ready to talk. Mm -hmm. And that can be a pause that is so long that it is almost excruciating for the folks who do the talking most of the time. Right. And it's that, you know, that classic like 80-20 rule where you have 20% of the people in the room are doing 80% of the talking. And because of that, as a, you know, as a designer, as an observer, you are biased towards thinking that they are the ones who have the most important things to say as well. And just, you know, letting, letting the air settle in the room. And also... You know, I always make sure that, you know, if we have a meeting that is time bracketed, that if, you know, obviously this is different in this kind of COVID era of, of Zoom meetings, but when we're in person, you know, we always try to eat a meal there with the group. So we're there over lunch and people will approach you during lunch. You didn't say anything during the meeting. And then we plan on there being like a parking lot time. Because someone will come up to you as you're on your way to your car and, you know, I'll, I'll budget another half hour just for that because mm -hmm. some of those really important observations come from someone who just didn't feel ready to say something in the room. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's huge. Kind of creating, intentionally creating that additional space. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And then the last the last principle is respect for craft, which again, I think just ties in so seamlessly with the four points preceding it. But yeah, let's touch on that one. Yeah, well, it, it really means, you know, I think we're very aware in our firm that we aren't the ones who are building the buildings that we design. And we aren't the ones who are maintaining them. We aren't the ones who have to clean them. We aren't the ones who have to replace something when it breaks. And so there are all of these people who have those skills and have those responsibilities. And we have to respect that that's happening. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And to the point where we tried to give them space at, at the table during the designs process as well. And where this comes into play when we're doing camp planning is making sure that the operations and maintenance and kitchen staff, that they are always at the table, that we always make time to talk to them and see their facilities. Because if the toilets don't flush, if the linens don't get changed, if the water in the showers is freezing cold, then that is ruining someone's experience of Mm -hmm. camp. And then if the maintenance facilities aren't taken care of and, you know, that group of very important people doesn't have all of the resources that they need, then their morale is low and they're not, you know, they're not going to be able to do their jobs well. So we even try to find uh, creative ways you know, when we're doing the camp planning process. We say, you know, it's it, it might not be it might might not be the sexiest thing to put in the fundraising book, mm-hmm. uh, but if we can find a way to get a donor inspired to pay for infrastructure, to pay for a new maintenance building, to pay to repair a road that's rutted and uh, maybe in the wrong place then we will do everything we can to, to help that along because mm-hmm. those people who, who have those skills, uh, whether it's building the building or, or maintaining it, they really need to be a part of the process. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, I love that you mentioned that. I think, I think it's so important for, for camps to keep in mind and especially these areas that are often likely overlooked. And, um, it just makes me think about when camps are, are hiring for the upcoming summer, whether it is seasonal staff, or maybe they're looking to hire year round staff to, to have in mind, to respect the craft that these people do and to, to ensure them that, that they are seen and that the work that they do, they're not just being hired to complete a job, but that they are a part of the collective whole and that. And that there is, again, going back to that mutual understanding and that collaboration without ego and seeing seeing all the parts that make up the beautiful experience that is a camp and a camp experience. Yeah, super valuable for, especially for our camp owners and directors to, to keep in mind as, as they're hiring and, and not just hiring, but working with their current staff and and just kind of- And, and we've really learned things that are, are just so critical points, critical points of potential failure. You know, if if there have been five different architects who have come in at different times to design different buildings, and you have five different brands of toilets and bathroom fixtures, that means five different filters, five different drain traps, five different flush valves Mm -hmm. that the maintenance person has to stock and has to know which one which one's more fragile, which one breaks. If you specify, we've seen camps where there's a, you know, kind of a shiny new dining hall and the siding that's on it is this specialty material. And it's one that the, the O&M department can't get from Home Depot. Then, you know, when someone runs a mower into it, and there's a piece of broken siding, it's going to be replaced with whatever they can get 
at Home Depot. Mm -hmm. Um, So you really have to be thinking about that long term, who is going to be living with this building and what happens when something needs to be fixed. Right. Absolutely. So with all of that in mind, let's talk for a second. I would love to hear what, and this might be a multiple part question, what the process of designing a camp looks like. And maybe for you all, maybe that looks like working with a camp that already exists and doing renovations or facility upgrades. Um, I would love to learn what that process looks like. Well, it really starts with creating that shared language. So we go through a process that uh, we call pattern writing. And uh, that is, you know, what is a pattern? Uh, A pattern put very simply is an issue and a solution. And so an issue is stated in kind of the, 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 the shortest and most concise way, either a challenge, a problem that needs to be solved, or in many cases, a strength, something that if you fundamentally changed it, the camp would lose something. And we spend a a lot of time up front. It's the first thing we do, really interviewing as many people as we can, that broadest cross-section of all the stakeholders, uh, including campers, including youth staff, camp staff, like I said, the operations and maintenance folks, and gathering those issues and reaching a, a consensus on what the right issues are. And it goes from every scale, from the camp as a whole, the camp's relationship to the larger community, all the way down to how a cabin gets cleaned. Mm -hmm. And once we've really gathered those issues, then we start writing those solution statements. And so it's one thing to have something that's just sort of a sentiment, a feeling, you know, that, oh, the camp should feel like a welcoming place where I belong, which is a great statement to start with. But a a solution statement for a pattern really has to be written in such a way that it helps you make decisions about how to shape a space. Mm -hmm. And that's what we always bring it down to, because that's something that people can very much understand, that it's one thing to say, we want to create a sense of belonging. It's another thing to say, what does a sense of belonging mean in terms of how do you come into camp? What's the first thing that happens? Um, Is it a parent coming in and doing drop off and they need, they've been on the road, so they need to find a bathroom. And so you need to have a, you know, a toilet facility that's right by where that drop-off happens and it needs to be the best toilet facility that's on the entire camp because if you have a bad first experience at drop-off just trying to go to the bathroom after hours on the road then that could be a deal breaker for some families and so we always try to bring it back around to well how does it how does it help us shape space And then those patterns, you know, just like up at the top, we were talking about how there is this sense of interconnectedness that really drives everything that we do, is all those patterns work together to form what we call a pattern language. So every camp will have a different one. 
some of them will share common patterns. So we have patterns that talk about, you know, the use of outdoor space, trying to create outdoor rooms. We have a lot of patterns that te- that deal with circulation that we use over and over again, how you, you know, how you come into camp, the relationship of the fact that camp is this nature place, but often has to handle a lot of vehicular traffic, cars and buses and how do you handle that sort of, you know, that paradox of a lot of people driving to a place to be in nature? And so there's sort of a big parking lot driving experience that happens right as you come into camp. So we have common patterns like that that really talk about those relationships. And then, you know, like I said, there are unique traditions uh, with different camps and unique sets of circumstances. And then every person is different. Yes. Yeah. Thinking about how different camps have different languages. I mean, to me, it just, it makes me think about how each camp has its own, like you said, traditions and experiences. And if you are a camper or a camp alum and you run out or you run into a fellow camper, like out in the wild, in the real world, Um, you have a shared language that Mm -hmm. only makes Mm -hmm. sense to the two of you. Maybe it's a camp song, maybe it's a tradition, but um, yeah, I think that's great. And recognizing that there's not necessarily a one size fits all approach when it comes to designing camps and to thinking about the functionality of how camps can operate their best. And especially in, in details that may again, be overlooked, like the parents experience that drop off. Cause it's so camper focused. Yeah. That's super interesting, but incredible that you all have that perspective and kind of that 360 view of it. What would you say are some of the recent trends when it comes to camp facilities, camp designs, and maybe that has to do with uh, the evolution of camps from camps that have been around for decades. How are they kind of evolving and, and growing or changing for today's campers how has COVID played an impact in all that? What have you been seeing these days? Uh, well, obviously, COVID is a pretty huge elephant in the room with everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that I've seen as a, a trend almost everywhere we've gone is this notion of year-round use mm-hmm. uh, so that camps are not really just summer camps anymore. And some camps have been already doing this for years and others are kind of starting to get on the bandwagon, realizing that they have these incredible facilities and they have an opportunity to engage with the community, but also to generate revenue in, if not year round, um, on the shoulder seasons outside of just a you know maybe six eight weeks of summer camp sessions uh, but then there are also opportunities for other kinds of groups for those specialty camps mm-hmm. and so we're getting a lot of requests for the kinds of facilities that will support that year-round use so whereas in the past there was a lot more focus on on kind of winterizing you know making sure that it can be shut down and things drained and that there was kind of a, a quiet season of camp that the activity at camp is really starting to spread out into other parts of the year. Yeah. Which I think is wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, it's an incredible opportunity and it also allows 
different camps to explore what makes them special. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways that's a, it, it can be a little bit of a mistake that some camps make, which is on the one hand, believing that your problems are unique uh, when in fact, you know, there are so many issues that are shared across camps. And there are a lot of directors mm-hmm. who think that like, they're the only ones who are working on a shoestring budget. Right. And, um, you know, they're the only ones who are trying to get another year out of their van's engine. When in fact, there, there are these great resources and a lot of these problems are, are shared. But on the other hand, there is that sense that we need to jump on whatever trend is really hot right now. Mm-hmm. So if it's if it's sort of a, a zip line course or the latest, you know, the latest like inflatable uh-huh. to go in the <laughs> lake, that there's we need to get one of those because everyone's got one of those. Right. Um, rather than looking at, hey, what is the thing that we do better than anybody else? And then how can we really lean into that? Mm-hmm. And so we always go into any, you know, any new camp looking for those things. What are the things that really stand out that you do differently here mm-hmm. um, that make you special? And we will, we want to enhance those things rather than the sometimes the instinct is to bring us in because we have worked with a lot of different camps to like okay well what are those other folks doing you know at that other camp and we want to we want to get some of that mm-hmm. and there's there's certainly there's certainly a degree of that but yeah you know figuring out what you do better than anyone else yeah. is so important definitely yeah definitely something to not lose sight of and i wanted to ask you about ways that camps, when they're thinking about either making improvements or renovations or new buildings or whatever it may be, thinking about the idea of being more accessible. But something that you just brought up that I didn't even think about until now is the idea of not only camps having more accessibility in their physical spaces and their facilities, but the idea of being more accessible throughout the year. And being more accessible for people to have the camp experience if somebody has to work over the summer and is not able to get away for, for a month or a week, or if, if they're, if they can't send their child to camp for that extended period of time, having these different opportunities throughout the year for them to have the ability to go to camp and have that experience. So Uh, Again, I know that's kind of a a multi-pronged approach, but what are some ways that you all as an architectural firm and a design firm, what are ways that you all are thinking about accessibility when it comes to camps and catering to diverse populations? And with that in mind, what are some ways that camps and our listeners can begin to think about that process for themselves? Sure. Um, And that's a great question because I I think in a lot of ways, the, the Americans with Disabilities Act is one of our most successful pieces of legislation because it just opened up large parts of the world to people who, frankly, were, were kind of shut in for a very long time because of one disability or another. They did not have the freedom to visit places and have the same experience as everyone else. So the ADA, it has so many 
good strategies and accommodations for people of all different abilities. And a lot of people really think of it purely in terms of someone in a wheelchair, because that's kind of the classic symbol of something that's accessible is that that wheelchair stick figure. But it's so much more complex than that. It has to do with, you know, uh, disabilities that might not even be visible to someone. And I think that's where the the ADA doesn't quite go far enough. Mm. And especially with some of the, you know, the, the traumas or learning disabilities or, you know, different situations that campers and their families come to camp with that may not fall into those sort of traditional categories. And so what we try to think of is to think of what all of the barriers might be for someone to have a full experience of camp. Mm-hmm. You know, what are the ways in which someone, you know, might not just be able to access a building or a place, but what is it that's going to make them feel safe and welcomed mm-hmm. there, you know, and that can be how, how restrooms are configured, not just, you know, not just the fixtures and fittings of the place. But mm-hmm. so we, we try to learn as much as we can about the community and about the people who are coming to camp and to make those kinds of accommodations in the facility and not just to, I think the biggest thing is just to not always simply think about the fixtures and furniture and door hardware and stuff like that. But, you know, one, one of the things that I'll, I'll give an example. So we worked with a, a camp in Southern Indiana where uh, they run a couple of different specialty camps, but for kids who have a lot of special needs. And one of the things that we had to educate ourselves on is that a lot of these kids are coming with a lot of, with a medication regime. Mm -hmm. And often those medications can be, they can need refrigeration. And so at just, and an infirmary facility is not necessarily just a place where a camper goes when they're sick but it can be a place that they go every day or multiple times a day to get meds. And this particular camp had that situation and uh, everyone would go with a buddy. So there would be a camp buddy and then the camper who was going to get their meds. And so the camp buddy was standing around outside because the infirmary was so small that there wasn't any waiting space. So we came up with a design for the infirmary that had a big screen porch with a nice ceiling fan in it. So it could be a place where the camp buddies could go and wait and hang out with other camp buddies. And so it didn't feel like, you know, it it was a pleasant place to be and it was supporting this process that had to happen Mm -hmm. every day and made everyone feel comfortable. Yeah. And so that is a kind of accessibility that doesn't show up anywhere in a guidebook. Right. uh, But it requires that you kind of put your listening cap on Mm -hmm. and, and really learn what's happening and learn what those barriers are 
for someone to have a good experience. Yeah. That's such an incredible idea. And I just think how many other camps listening to this are thinking like, oh yeah, we have the same issue and what a simple solution that has such a strong impact. And I love that thought of thinking beyond just the, the accessibility of, of, like you said, like being able to cater to somebody who is in a wheelchair, but really thinking on a much more complex level and kind of looking at every aspect of camp and thinking, what are ways that we can enhance this experience, make it more enjoyable, make it more accessible so that everybody has a similar or whatever it may be, have a wonderful camp experience and kind of remove some of those obstacles that they may not have ever considered as obstacles. So I think, yeah, that's, that's so cool. I love that. So you mentioned working with that camp was in Southern Indiana and your Mm -hmm. office is located where? In Wisconsin. Okay. Yeah, do you all have just, multiple offices or just in Wisconsin? We do. We have, um, we, we have an office in Cedarburg, Wisconsin, and then one in Milwaukee. And then we also have an office in Seattle, Washington. Okay. And so the camps that you all work with, if somebody is listening to this and they are in say Florida, do you work with kind of anybody anywhere or is it more localized to your office areas? No, actually we just finished a, a camp plan for the Florida Elks. Oh, well, perfect. So <laughs> I did we, not know that ahead of time. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, yeah, we, uh, we spent the summer in, in Florida. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, wonderful. Okay, great. So if people are interested in working with you all day, they, they certainly can. That's awesome. Absolutely. Yep. So before we wrap this up, where do you hope to see camps going in the near or maybe in the far future? Where would you like to see camps go? Maybe that's in terms of, I know that's very broad, in terms of their design, especially where you all come in, but also what are your hopes and dreams and where would you like to see the summer camp experience going? Oh, wow. Um, I don't know if I'm (laughs) smart enough to see that far in the future. I just, I just want to keep being involved. Um, I I think one thing that we are just always advocating for, and I, I think not entirely selfishly is is just for the importance of planning your camp and going through a planning exercise and understanding you know it can often seem that the a, a planning exercise is something that seems very expensive and i think every camp director wants to be fiscally responsible mm-hmm. but when you think about the idea that you're spending potentially in the millions of dollars building new facilities to take a fraction of that, a percentage of that, and spending it on really taking that time to slow down and to plan and to really come up with something that meets, that is as beautiful as the vision that you have Mm -hmm. for the camp. Um, That would be the thing that I would hope to see is, is um, is that everyone is is doing this everyone is kind of doing that long-term thinking yeah definitely yeah and that's something that i think really anybody can benefit from not just camps but that's Mm -hmm. a lesson that we can all learn and and remember and take to heart so eric is there anything that we have not talked about or touched on that you would like to (laughs) i feel like i've gone on way too long lauren no we've we've, Um, we've covered a lot and it's been wonderful Yeah, no, I've, I've loved talking with you and, Likewise, um, you. we're just, yeah, 
I'm just so excited to, uh, you know, to continue working with camps. And um, I know this will probably air after the conference in Portland is uh, over, but, uh, but I will be there uh, this week. And uh, so I'm looking forward to maybe seeing some more of you in person. And um, yeah, excited just to do more and more work with the camp community. Yes, absolutely. So if people are interested in learning more about TKWA or connecting with you, where can they find you? Uh, well, you can certainly check out our website, which is www.tkwa.com and uh, certainly reach out to the firm as well. And we, we try to be pretty active on social media as well. So you can see not only our camp work, but uh, the other kinds of uh, planning and architecture that we do. Mm -hmm. And we'd love to hear from you. So yeah, please reach out. Yes, for sure. Well, Eric, thank you so much. This has been such a joy. And I've, I feel like I've learned a ton uh, over the course of this conversation. And I'm sure our listeners have as well. So thank you again for the work that you and TKWA continue to do. And it is much, much appreciated. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Lauren. And thank you, listener, for tuning in to this episode of the Campwire Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our show wherever you download your podcast. You can rate, leave a review, and share this episode with a friend to keep the conversation going. And be sure to follow the American Camp Association at ACA Camps wherever you find your social media. And we look forward to seeing you next time.